Okay, so please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And I just want to share seven points with you all before we get into the text in question. Because Acts chapter 8 is a major turning point in the book of Acts. Three books in the New Testament, which you need to be very careful of if you are a Bible teacher. Matthew, Acts and Hebrews. And those three books picture the major transition from law to grace from the old covenant into the new covenant. And I'll say this, that if you are a wise brother, if you are able to teach the word of God, these are the hardest books to teach. And on the other hand, these aren't the books to go to, strictly speaking, when it comes to doctrine. But uh, the first point I want to share is that the apostles prayed as a group to know whether Justice or Matthias should have placed Judas Iscariot. Acts chapter 1. Verse 24. The apostles from Acts 2 are the only recipients of speaking in tongues. To suggest otherwise is to argue from silence. The apostles Peter and John worked as a team throughout chapter 3. There's no one man minister. The fourth point. The apostles Peter and John's incarceration resulted in around 5,000 getting saved. Again, nobody spoke in tongues. So to suggest to the contrary is to argue from silence. And that's of course from Acts chapter 4. The fifth point, in Acts 4.36, the apostles as a group surnamed Joseus, who were going to be called Barnabas. From chapter 5, verse 19, the angel of the Lord arrives in Acts and speaks to Peter and John. And he will return in Acts 8.26. And the seventh and final point, the apostles laid their hands on Stephen and Philip, amongst others, of course, to be evangelists to be associates of their own that's found in chapter 6 verse 6 so you see the apostles are working as a unit there's no one man corner shots and i say that because as we go through this piece of scripture for today's lord's day service you will see that once again the apostles are going to work as a group that's very important to understand but last time we left off with paul known pre his conversion as saul of tarsus acting as an antagonist religious fanatic going from house to house, rounding up the early church leaders and individuals and putting them to death. Not directly, but indirectly. And we saw the fall of one good man known as Stephen and the rise of Philip. And this man, Philip, is going to preach to the first Gentile converts, if you will, in the book of Acts, a proselytes. But we may get to him in the next service. I don't know. Let's see if we get on for time. But let's start today's service, if we may. And I pray the Lord will bless today's broadcast abundantly. For his glory and for his namesake in Jesus. Amen. And let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 13. Acts 8, verse 13, please. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wandered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Verse 13, Friday the 13th, 13666, 13 being very synonymous in the word of the occult. And without wanting to sound superstitious, I think it's important that this man, who we also read about last week in verse 9, 10, and 11, is picked up again here in verse 13. It says, He believed and was baptized, and he continued with Philip and wandered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. This is a very tricky piece of scripture to exegete, and I'll show you as we go on why that is the case. But we were told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that it is possible to believe in vain. That's why we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, I think it is, to examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. But if you believed in sincerity, if you 
believed on the Lord and trusted in him, then you are saved, of course, and I showed you that from last time. But this man is an enigma. This man, Simon the sorcerer, was into witchcraft, wickedness, Satanism, and he had quite a grip over Samaria. And it said that he'd been around for some time. He was a great one. And they all said this man is the great power of God. But let's read on, 14. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. The apostles sent Peter and John to Samaria. Isn't that interesting? The church as a whole sent Peter, the oldest apostle, and John, the youngest apostle, to Samaria. To pray for them, 15, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. This is the first time that we have read thus far how a group of recipients are needing the apostles to go down and pray for them to receive the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been saved 13 years and nobody prayed for me to receive the Holy Ghost. And on top of that, it says in verse 16, For as yet he, the Holy Ghost, he's a person, was fallen upon none of them. Only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is very similar to John's baptism from Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, of course. But here you see that there is a turning point. There's a transition. The Holy Spirit hadn't fallen upon any of them. Hence why Peter and John are dispatched from Jerusalem to go down to Samaria to pray for them to receive the Holy Ghost. And you'll find something similar to this in chapter 9 when Ananias will lay his hands on Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes Paul the Apostle, and he receives his sight in a physical and spiritual sense. But here, this is a unique piece of scripture. And from chapters 1 to 7, we found people hearing the word of God, believing and being saved. On the day of Pentecost, around 3,000. In chapter 4, around 5,000. Nobody laid their hands on those recipients. They believed and were saved. But here, it's necessary for the apostles to be dispatched from Jerusalem, the mother church, to Samaria, to pray for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. And one last time from 16. For as yet he, being a person, not God's active force, according to the Jehovah's false witnesses, was fallen upon none of them. He hadn't fallen on any of them in reference to the Samaritans. Only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, they're not yet saved. Because we are told from scripture that for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. So they believed, they were baptized, but they weren't yet saved. And this is why I said at the beginning of this message that what you don't want to do, if you have any sense, is to teach Acts of the Apostles as a doctrinal book. It's a transitional book. And you'll find, I think, in chapter 10, dealing with Cornelius and his associates they have a similar conversion but when you get to chapter 16 you find the Philippian jailer just believing and no one laid their hands on him he didn't speak in tongues Peter James and John weren't dispatched to put their hands on him he simply believed and was saved so I have to spend time explaining this because if you're not careful you're going to make all sorts of blunders if you are a teacher of the word of God and that's why you were told to study to show yourself approved unto God and that's why you need to be careful when you Divide up the word of God. Let's move on, please. Verse 17. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. 
in reference to their salvation, not confirmation. If you were to sit down with a typical Catholic or Protestants and ask them to exegete this piece of scripture, they will say, there you are, you see, you need to be prayed over. You need to have someone lay their hands on you to be confirmed. That's the word confirmed. There's no confirmation in the word of God. These people are awaiting the apostles, the dispensers of salvation to arrive in Samaria, to lay their hands on them in order to become the recipients of salvation. But listen to me one more time, please. This was a one-off event. Yes, you're going to find it in chapter 9, alluded to with Paul the Apostle, but we'll look at that next time. And yes, you'll find it in chapter 10 in reference to Cornelius and his associates, but that's it. That's it. 18. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. There's that man again, Simon, the sorcerer, known in history as Simon Magnus, an antichrist, a pope, if you will. And he's seeing Philip preaching the word of God. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He's seeing these supernatural miracles right in front of his eyes. People are being saved and healed. Hence his interest and desire to be a part of this, to be baptized. In fact, you saw it very closely in 13. He believed and was baptized. This man was baptized by Philip, no doubt, a spirit-filled man of God sent down from Jerusalem. And no, Philip was not a deacon. And no, Stephen was not a deacon. If you read First Timothy chapter 3, you were told very clearly what a deacon would entail. But here this man is an evangelist. This man was a true evangelist going out by faith. And he wasn't selling DVDs or books or tapes. He wasn't taking up a collection. He was preaching the word of God and he was risking his life, much like Stephen did, I might add. But here, 18, and when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. It's obvious to me, if it's not to you, that this group of recipients would have been speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 2, that's the first time we found it, very clearly in reference to the apostles, and only the apostles, I might add. But here, the impression is, at least as far as I'm concerned, that this group have received, laying on of the hands from the apostles. The Holy Ghost has been given to them. And what does he do? He wants to offer them money. This man's a wicked individual. And he says in 19, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. So it's my belief that the Samaritans got saved and spoke in tongues. And tongues were a sign to unbelievers, not to believers. And no doubt this great act, this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit was done, first of all, to make it clear that the apostles had gone from Jerusalem down to Samaria, that the Jews were saved, and now the Samaritans were saved. A group which were looked down upon from their Jewish counterparts, if I can use that word. And because Simon the sorcerer had such a grip on Samaria, filled with unclean spirits, no doubt, it was necessary for the apostles to be dispatched. It was necessary for the apostles to go down, preach to the Samaritans, lay their hands on them, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. But I'm going to focus in on Simon the Sorcerer, this very questionable character, spoken of in history as an Antichrist, the first Pope, perhaps. And he's got a following, and he thinks that if he has any money, or enough money, he can corrupt the apostles, purchase the Holy Spirit's, and he can go on and baptize and fill believers with the Holy Spirit. It's a very strange point in Acts chapter 8. But let's move on. And if I get a chance, I'll return back to 
Simon the sorcerer. 20. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Silver and gold have I none. Acts chapter 4. But what I have give I you. In reference to the layman outside the beautiful gate. And here he says to Simon, your money perish with you. Because you have thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. This is typical of, I would say, a modern day televangelist wanting to corrupt the body of Christ. Just send some money in and I'll send you a handkerchief, a cloth. I'll send you some water from the Holy Land. I'll pray over this book of mine or this DVD of mine. I'll do this or I'll do that. Just send an offering. Just send a donation, a love offering. And I'll send it out to you. And here, Peter is furious. He's offended. And he goes and say in verse 21, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. He was carnal as well as being an unbeliever. And yet saying that, I must say this, that it is possible, just slightly possible, that this man was saved. And yet his heart was desperately wicked. And I showed you from chapter 5 some studies ago how two individuals were cut down in their prime. And we saw the death of Stephen, a good man. And we're seeing the success of Philip. So you see a lot of streams are occurring. A lot of themes are occurring throughout the word of God. But here the apostles Peter and John are having to deal with this man. A larger than life character. And no doubt the whole town are watching this man Simon very carefully to see what is going to occur. 22. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God if perhaps a thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. He had free will, Simon the sorcerer, to repent, to seek forgiveness of the Lord. 23. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. It does give the impression, does it not, that this man was never saved, that this man was never regenerate, that this man had never been born again, and yet there's just a slight chance that he may have been saved. But let's move on, please. 24. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. There's no response from the apostles in reference to this plea. And I think he was more upset about being exposed as a hypocrite, for being exposed as somebody who was carnal, lustful, interested in the miracles and signs and wonders, and not wanting to be born again. And he says, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. It's like Pharaoh back in the book of Exodus. Eight times Moses comes up against Pharaoh and he says, do this and do that. And Pharaoh says, no, I won't. And pestilence, uh, plagues, the death of the firstborn occur. And right at the end of that ongoing clash between Moses and Pharaoh, he says, pray you to the Lord for me and bless me also. Pray you to the Lord for me and bless me also. So the spirit behind Pharaoh, back in the book of Exodus, is the same spirit which is behind Simon the sorcerer. And yet I've read commentaries which suggest that this man was saved, and others which would say, no, he wasn't saved, he was a false convert. I personally am going to probably hold to the latter, but the former cannot be ruled out. If he was saved, he's a picture of somebody arriving at the judgment seat with nothing to await him, like Lot, or like Thomas Bernardo a man we wrote about some months ago. But this man, a sorcerer, carnal, got baptised, 13, believed, 
But he continued, beholding the miracles and signs which were done from Philip. And therefore, what do they do? Well, they send word back to Jerusalem. Send for Peter, send for John. Let them come down and check out what's going on here because of this long period of hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. And on top of that, this man, Simon the sorcerer, is a witch doctor, pre his salvation. But as I say, reading these verses this morning, I'm of the opinion, I'm of the impression that this man wasn't saved, never was saved, never came to the cross broken, didn't really understand his sin problem, but through the laying on of hands to the recipients receiving the gift of speaking in tongues, which is a known language, he thought he'd get himself some of that. He said to himself, I want some of that. I want to be something special. So let's leave it there. Let's not go beyond. Let's not speculate as to whether or not this man was truly saved or not. But for the record, without wanting to contradict myself, I think he probably was not saved. But again, I can't be dogmatic about that. And somebody very wisely said that only three people know whether a person is saved or not. You, the Lord, and the devil. And that's probably true. Only you know if you're saved. The Lord certainly knows if you are saved. And the devil definitely knows if you are saved. Outside of that, it's very difficult to tell whether somebody is saved or not. So if you're put in a position where you don't know if somebody is saved, give them the benefits of the doubt. And if in doubt, preach the gospel to them. 25. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. No response to his plea, 24, to praise the Lord for me. They're going to go on with the ministry, preaching the word of God to the people in Jerusalem and the surrounding villages of the Samaritans. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized will be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. And here, Philip's ministry temporarily goes on hold, and the apostles have been dispatched back to Jerusalem. But they're still soul winning on the way back. There's no sitting around. There's no putting your feet up. There's no time for a break or taking the scenery or get a suntan. They're going to preach for as long as they possibly can because souls are perishing because people need to be born again. 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. The angel of the Lord, this is the second time he has appeared in the book of Acts, and he says, Arise and go down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. This is Philistine land. David and Goliath, Samson and Delilah, this is hostile territory. He's saying you've had a good run in Jerusalem. You've had a good run in Samaria, but now it's time to go down to Philistine land. Hostile territory, and if you go to Gaza, today it's Palestinian territory, or so they call it. Hostile land, Ishmaelites, known through secularism and known through the world as Muslims. And the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. This is a clear word from the Lord, and by faith, off he goes down to Gaza, which is desert. Not knowing what to expect, I might add, but when the Lord calls you to do something, you do it. When he calls you to do something, you do it. You drop everything, and off you go. 27, please. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, 
an eunuch of great authority under Candice, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for the worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. And he arose, 27, and went. There's obedience. He's called to do something, and off he goes through obedience down to Gaza, not knowing what awaits him, and he comes across an Ethiopian, a eunuch, who had great authority under Candice, queen of the Ethiopians. So he's a eunuch, and on top of that, he's a treasurer. He went up to Jerusalem for the worship, but he's now returning, and he's sitting in his chariot reading the prophet Isaiah. So he is a Gentile proselyte. He's converted from paganism to Judaism, but he's not yet saved. And this is fascinating because this man is important in the sense that the angel of the Lord wants Philip to go down and preach to him personally. Now, I'm not sure about you, but nobody preached to me personally that was sent from heaven. But here, this time, this part of the early church is experiencing miracles, left, right, and center. But let's read this verse a little more carefully, if we may please. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, reading Isaiah the prophet. This man was important. He's sitting in a chariot. He's reading Isaiah, a Jewish Old Testament book. But he's limited in his knowledge. He's limited in understanding what the Old Testament is all about. As he would be, of course. He's a Gentile, raised in paganism. He's a eunuch. He's either castrated himself, or he's being castrated, perhaps, by other people. And he's reading the Word of God. He's trying to get close to the Lord. And you were told in Romans chapter 1 how those that are not saved are, at many times, at enmity with God. But they know that God is God. But they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And yet, if they return from darkness to light, the Lord will turn to them and get them saved. 29. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Angel of the Lord, 26. 29. The Spirit said to Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. The angel of the Lord is deity. And back in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ, a Christophany. And in the New Testament, the angel of the Lord, I think, is in reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, it is possible, I must say this, that it is possible that, on the one hand, the angel of the Lord spoke in 26, and then later on, the Holy Spirit spoke in 29. That's possible, but I'm of the opinion anyway that the Holy Spirit is the angel of the Lord for the New Covenant. And I made the argument in my last message that... In Matthew 28, the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and sat upon the stone to allow the apostles entrance, not to allow the Lord Jesus Christ to exit. So I think that the angel of the Lord is the Holy Spirit, his deity. Look at 30, please. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? Philip ran. That's a picture of moving. That's a picture of doing something. If the Lord spoke to you in an audible voice, you'd run like fire. If you had a feeling in your spirit to do something and it's from heaven, check it with scripture. And if it matches, you better move quickly. And this man ran to the Ethiopian eunuch and he says to him in 30, do you understand what you are reading? Understandest thou what thou readest? This is the first general witness from a saved Jew, Philip to a proselyte, 
a man that has come out of darkness. And it's a fair question, do you understand what you are reading? And please keep this in mind that around this time, where are we now, 34, 35, 36 AD, there's no New Testament. The first New Testament book was probably either James's epistle or Mark's gospel. I'm not sure if Mark went first or Matthew. I think it's possible that Mark went first, then Matthew wrote afterwards. But here, there's no scripture. On top of this intertestimonial period, you need prophets, you need evangelists, such as Philip and Stephen and others. And he says, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I accept some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. But you were told, were you not, in Second Timothy 2.15, to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for a proof, for correction, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped under all good works. On top of that, we were told that how no interpretation of scripture was given by any private interpretation, but holy men of God spake as they are moved by the Holy Ghost. So you are very much looking at an intertestimonial period. And that's why I said right at the beginning of this message, and I will say it again, that if you teach Acts doctrinally, you're going to have many problems. And the same is true of Matthew and Hebrews. But he says to Philip, he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Now he's going to teach him personal evangelism. He's going to teach him. And it says in verse 32, the place of the scripture which was read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb down before his shearer. So opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Directed, quoted, cited from Isaiah 53. This piece of scripture was known amongst the Jews to be in reference to the Messiah. And yet this man was a Gentile. He wouldn't have known much about the Old Testament. He may not have been searching for very long, but his prayer was heard. His heart was right in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord dispatched Philip, who ran to him, to speak to him, to preach to him, to give him more light. And that's why we can say to people that if you are living in a rainforest or a third world country, or if you're living outside of civilization, if you are isolated, if you are sincere, listen, if you are sincere and you search for the Lord with all of your heart, he will find you and he will send somebody to you. And here he sent Philip to Gaza, hostile land, Philistine territory, to reach this one man, this Ethiopian eunuch. And this man will get saved. And we'll pick it up next time as to what happens this man of God, this individual. And he'll go back to Ethiopia, which today is Islamic. And Ethiopia, back in biblical times, was also in darkness. And you were told back in the Old Testament that when Solomon was on a throne, his throne reached Ethiopia to India and beyond. Incredible to think such a thing would be possible. But through the sins of the patriarchs, through the sins of the kings... Bit by bit, they lose some of their land and territory. But I won't go into that now. But I will leave it today, if I may, in verse 33, with Philip preaching, witnessing, speaking to this Ethiopian eunuch, a eunuch, an unsaved man, but a man with great authority. And as they say, the Lord moved heaven and earth for this man to be reached for the gospel's sake. So we will conclude today's service and today's broadcast in verse 33. And next time we will continue from Acts 8, verse 34.